Hey listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Hacking History. I'm Mike. I'm Todd. And we're just a couple old history teachers that love to talk history. Todd, how was your holiday? It was good. Got to see a lot of family. Got to exchange gifts. Uh, Everybody was happy. Maybe they were happy to leave. I don't know, but we all had a good time. Was your wife happy with her Christmas present? She was. She was. It took a while to figure out what the magic gift was, but we found it, uh, and she is very, very happy with it. How about yours? Yeah, it, it was. Um, but but I, she was very happy with her gift, but, but tell us a little bit about what you got your wife for Christmas. <laughs> I kept trying to dance around that a little bit, but you keep coming back. Okay. Yeah. It's a pretty special gift. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, we got her a new wedding ring. Um, She's had one that we've been married a very long time, and the ring is worn uh, down on the bottom, and we were looking at uh, repairing it, but instead opted to do a new one. Now, me being the old type fart that I am, uh, you know, this is not just a Christmas gift, but it's a, you know, birthday, Valentine's Day, wedding anniversary, Mother's Day and whatever else I can get out of that gift. So So does that mean when those those days do fuck come in, come around, that you're not going to get her a gift? I'm going to go over there and hold her hand and show that ring to her really Mm -hmm. nice and close and say, Happy Mother's Day. I'd be curious to see how that works out for you. We'll see. We'll see. This podcast may end up abruptly or there will be one guy left to do it. It may be the end of this podcast (laughs) as we know it. Might be a solo career for Mike. Yeah, I don't know if that that's possible. Um, well, um, we have uh, some more great history to talk about today. Uh, we'll be talking about imperialism, uh, the Spanish-American War, and Mr. Theodore Roosevelt. So, Todd, you want to get us going with some imperialism? Yeah, so with this uh, season, we're getting into the world power. Uh, we're talking about the turn of the century, pretty specifically, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And this is the emergence of the United States as a world power uh, leading up into the World War One. But to get there, you know, there's a few things that are changing on our horizon as a country and things that are going on around the world as well. One of the most namely things is imperialism. So Mike, what what do you think of when you think of imperialism? Um, I think about the British Empire. Well, and that's an excellent example. The sun never sets on the British Empire. No, sir. They had so many acquisitions around the world. Uh, that the sun, you know, the old saying the sun never sits on the British Empire literally meant that no matter where the sun was in the world, somewhere uh, there was British holdings that were still being in the daylight. And for the United States, comes into the game, imperialism being countries that had, you know, some economic success, venturing out and acquiring lands, uh, people, on those lands and using those resources for their own benefit and creating new markets to do that uh, by doing that as well. Now, for the United States, and and this is true of the others that were being imperialistic at the time, there were some things that were 
causing that. And some of those factors were economics, the growth of industry needing new markets. Uh, U.S. markets had a huge surplus. We couldn't consume it fast enough, so we needed to sell the, into new markets. There was also a nationalistic movement, the belief that uh, you know you want to be an international empire, you want to be big, you want to be strong. That's us. We want to flout our muscles. And that leads into militaristic factors as well. At this time, a lot of countries were developing their militaries. We're going to see new technologies we'll talk about later. With this militaristic growth comes the need to test it and show it off. Then there's the humanitarian factor as well. Uh, the spread of blessings such as uh, modern civilizations helping those that weren't as modern, spreading Christianity, religion. Those were also movements during this time uh, and the belief that people had the right to govern themselves as well, the belief of helping others gain independence. So all these things kind of play into this imperialistic movement. And for the United States, I'm going to start with Hawaii. Have you ever been to Hawaii, Mike? I have. It's been a long time ago, but I spent a week in Hawaii, mostly on the Big Island. Big Island. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, my daughter went uh, not very long ago, and kept sending us gorgeous, gorgeous pictures. Such a beautiful, beautiful place. It's hard to take a bad picture in Hawaii. I can believe that. I can believe that. Well, Hawaii became part of the United States by becoming a protectorate uh, in the late 19th century. Now, how does it become a protectorate? Well, we start having some market opportunities in that area. Talking about pineapples, talking about bananas, uh, American businessmen going into this area and making use of the rich and fertile lands in the tropical areas to grow these things. So with the uh, ruling party or ruling family, I should say, in Hawaii, we have uh, members of the King Kalaas, uh, excuse me for butchering these names, cabinet used the opportunity of his death to overthrow the monarchy of his sister, Queen Lily Kalani. Now this came with the support of the U.S. Marines and obviously U.S. businessmen, uh, and then we get the Republic of Hawaii out of that. So this is the first movement towards becoming an American territory, influenced by American businessmen. Uh, ultimately, it would go from a territory to a state, but that's for another uh, podcast. American and China. Talk about that. Spears and influence. By the 1850s, European nations were already in having their influence in China. China was fairly vulnerable at this time. The United States did not have a spear in this. And efforts on administrative parts like Secretary of State John Jay, they became very worried about the ability to trade or do any kind of trade in China. And seeing that great opportunity, we wanted a piece of that. So this being a great opportunity for us to get into these markets we created uh, united states secretary john jay in 1899 announced the open door policy this policy would give equal rights to all nations wanting access into china so basically we're asserting that everybody needs to share china uh, partly because we're coming in a little late for the opportunity to get involved now china you can imagine with all these different countries being involved in its affairs uh, would kind of rebel against that and they did in 1900 
uh, known as the Boxer Rebellion, opposed to the influence, began uh, killing foreigners living in China. The rebellion was put down by the U.S. and other Western nations uh, that wished to keep China open for trade. Uh, Secretary of State John Jay said the U.S. would oppose anyone attempting to use the rebellion to break up China. So that's a little bit of the imperialistic activity in China. Now let's jump back over to this side of the world and go a little further south. Let's talk about Panama for a second. So uh, Mike's going to dive into the Spanish-American War shortly, but uh, Panama is kind of in the region, in the realm, and is of high security to us for a very specific reason. There is no canal up to the point until we really get involved and we really kind of take it over uh, the project from the French, if I remember correctly. Was it the French mm -hmm. doing it? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it was the French that initially attempted to try to build a canal in Panama. Now, uh, we wanted to jump in on that because obviously the problems with navigating from the Atlantic to the Pacific meant going all the way around South America and we wanted a shorter access, quicker access, and you could save a significant amount of time if there was a canal in the area that we call Panama. So we try to talk to Colombia, who had control of that area. Would they do one? Uh, what could we do one? And uh, Colombia just kind of told us to go jump in a lake. And our response was to inspire the Panamanians to rebel. And then in their rebellion, we would help them get their freedom and then we could get our canal. So. We help them get free from Colombia, and we get a canal out of the deal. And we build the canal, and more we could just probably do a series of podcasts just on the construction of a canal. It took over 10 years, a significant loss of life, fighting mosquitoes and yellow fever, a tremendous thing to try to accomplish, and all spearheaded by President Roosevelt. But uh, it did get accomplished, and uh, it did save you know a tremendous amount of time eventually with the new path, not having to go around South America. And finally, for the uh, areas outside of the Spanish-American War, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the Caribbean area, as you know, some would say an American lake. Uh, we had doctrines like the Monroe Doctrine of 1832. That prevented European nations from establishing new colonies in the Western Hemisphere. President Roosevelt repeated this warning with the Roosevelt Corollary, warning Europeans or Europe to stay away out of this part of the world. Uh, Roosevelt Corollary also became known as the Big Stick Policy. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt often boasted that he would walk softly but carry a big stick. Uh, something I like to do with my kids. I got a big piece of a two by four in the corner of the classroom. I told them I'm not afraid to use it. Really? Hadn't had to use it yet. I bet not. And I tell them too that I just throw it in the direction of any misbehavior. Oh, that's so, an excellent idea. Yeah. So if somebody next to you is talking, you might want to make them be quiet because <laughs> you might get hit by the stick too. So, hasn't happened yet. 
but their eyes do get a little bigger when I talk about that two by four. Yeah. Uh, but I can't take the original credit for that. That goes to Teddy Roosevelt and his big stick policy. Yeah. Uh, we, we better throw in a disclaimer here. Yeah. Just to let all listeners know, Mr. Nice was completely kidding about throwing the big stick. Is that right? You were yes, yes. Yes. I was absolutely not. I mean, I was absolutely kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Nice is is the most even tempered, the the calmest cucumber in the whole school building. I can I can testify to that. I'm sure I've made him angry many, many times. I've never seen it, not just, not one time. So there you go. <laughs> the, kid, the kids call it chill. Chill? Mr. Nice, you're chill. He, so. he is definitely chill, and, and he definitely loves his kids. So, okay, end of disclaimer. <laughs> uh, but with that, American would go on to exert quite a bit of control and influence in the Caribbean, which is probably a good segue, also Central America, but also a good segue into what you have to say. Well, uh, I have a lot of exciting things to say, and, and just sitting here listening to you about uh, Hawaii and the Panama Canal and, and the Boxer Rebellion that occurred over in China, it just, it just uh, there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, and so just to kind of throw this into that mix, let's just talk about the Spanish-American War, which took place in 1898. Um, of course, you can guess it was between Spain and and the United States. And I tell my students, don't get confused with the Mexican-American War that occurred from 1845 to 1848. For some reason, they like to do that, I guess, because most folks from Mexico speak Spanish, and you can put two and two together there. But anyway, uh, Spain, of course, had developed a vast empire, um, starting with 1492, when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And um, not only had they um, developed a huge uh, colonial system in the New World, but also some in Southeast Asia, which included uh, the Philippines and some islands out in the South Pacific, um, such as Guam. So um, keep that kind of in mind when I'm talking about the Spanish-American War. Um, It, of course, was spurred on with the desire to expand markets, taking a step back in history to um, maybe 10 years, 20 years before the Spanish-American War, America is in the Gilded Age. And the ability to produce vast amounts of manufactured goods um, in America was just full throttle. Was It was just unbelievable. And even though we had millions and millions of immigrants coming in, especially from Europe at the time, we were still searching for uh, new markets. And, of course, China, and even today, of course, but China has always been uh, a key place for trade. And even back in 1898 or back in the Gilded Age, America had their eyes on trying to make a dollar from China. And so, um, anyway, that, that was uh, sort of a desire there that was what was pretty strong in America. But the whole idea of, of America becoming an empire was still just didn't set well. Even though we were, you know, 150 years or so um, from being a part of the British Empire, um, and, and we were dealing with Spain and Portugal and the French, um, 
the Dutch, uh, and of course England in South America, in the Caribbean, we still had a bad taste in our mouth about becoming an empire. So as we get into the Spanish-American War, there is the lure of having new markets, um, new places to make a dollar, and that is going to be really difficult to turn away from. But yet on the same hand there, we didn't want to become an empire. The, the idea of, of being an empire was sort of, it was sort of dissipating. It was sort of, uh, it, it wouldn't be long and the days of, of empire building would be gone for the most part forever by most European powers. But in 1898, I'm sorry, in 1895, the Cuban people started to revolt against Spain. They wanted independence. And of course, uh, they had been uh, a Spanish colony since 1492. And um, we had heard stories about how the Spaniards were starting to capture a lot of these Cuban people that were revolting, putting them in concentration camps, and thousands and thousands of them would actually starve to death. It was a really terrible time for the Cuban people. There were uh, rumors about how women were being strip searched, especially one that was trying to get on a ship. They thought, the Spaniards thought that she was a spy. Uh, they treated her horribly. Um, and some just some, some really bad stories that were coming out of Spain. Well, that captured the attention of two newspaper guys, one by the name of William Randolph Hearst of the New York Journal and Joseph Pulitzer, Pulitzer of the New York World. And they sent journalists down to Cuba, and the journalists sent reports back of part of those rumors were true. Some of them were not true. Um, and, of course, what sells newspapers? Juicy news. So with a little yellow journalism um, being played out, they gave President William McKinley his splendid little war. So in 1898, uh, McKinley sent the USS Maine down to Havana Harbor to protect American interest, especially sugar interest. And um, shortly after that, the Maine would explode in the middle of the night and it killed over 260 American sailors. Well, the first finger pointed was to, or the first place that the finger was pointed was to Spain. And so that would spark the war. Ironically, late years later, they come to find out that it was not a Spanish mine in Havana Harbor, but it was uh, an internal explosion in the boilers of this ship. So, oops. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, one of the, the big stars of the Spanish-American War would be, of course, Teddy Roosevelt. And um, Teddy Roosevelt is probably my, fam my favorite president. Um, and I want to just tell you a little bit about Mr. Roosevelt. First of all, he was born on October the 27th, 1858 at 28 East 20th Street in Manhattan, New York City. And if you're not familiar with New York City, I will tell you, and I had to do a little research on this, that this was not a poor neighborhood. This was kind of a really nice neighborhood. So he grew up um, 
I guess you could say, with a silver spoon in his mouth. Um, he would um, receive a private education from a tutor at home. Um, he did suffer from bad bouts of asthma, but he swam a lot in their swimming pool. He was involved in uh, outdoor activities such as horseback riding and boxing, and he worked very hard to overcome uh, these problems with asthma. Later on, he'll graduate from Harvard College, where he was elected Phi Beta Kappa in 1880. He studied Columbia Law School, or at Columbia Law School, but soon turned to writing and politics as a career. In 1880, he married Alice Hathaway Lee, by whom he had one daughter, Alice. After his first wife's death in 1886, he married Edith Kermit Carrow, with whom he lived for the rest of his life at Sagamore Hill, an estate near Oyster Bay, Long Island, New York. They had five children, Theodore Jr., Kermit, Ethel, Archibald, and Quentin. And, um, of course, um, one kind of fun fact about Theodore Roosevelt is that he didn't have a middle name. That was back in the day when middle names were just not that common or not that important. And uh, But he had a junior tied just like his son did. So, anyway, no middle name for President Teddy Roosevelt. Um, his father would die um, in 1878, and he would inherit quite a lot of money, probably about 1.3 to 5 million in today's time. So not just super super mega wealthy, but definitely had a had a pretty nice uh, lifestyle. He did depend a lot on his um, his. Uh, um, pay from being president and for his um, part in public office. So um, anyway, he would before he was elected president, he was a Republican in the in the New York State Assembly at 23 years old. He quickly made a name for himself as a foe of corrupt machine politics. And when we get more into him being president, one of his uh, key parts in in, in American history is going to be one of the trust-busting presidents. So even early on before he was president, he was going after those corrupt machine politics. In 1884, overcome by grief by the deaths of both his mother and his wife on the same day, he left politics to spend two years on a cattle ranch in the Dakota Territory. And it was there where he became very interested in environmental uh, damage to the West and its wildlife, and of course that would lead to uh, landmark legislation with the National Park System and so forth that we'll talk about later on. But let's uh, back up just a little bit and talk about his role in the Spanish-American War because to me that that's where it kind of gets exciting. So of course we know that this was um, a war for Cuban independence from Spain. And uh, at the time, Roosevelt would serve as the Assistant Secretary of Navy, and he would abdicate that throne, so to speak, for a bit to join the Army. And he's going to form a group of cavalry um, guys, but, and he, they're going to be called uh, Roosevelt's Rough Riders, 
and they would be made up of league athletes, glee club singers, Texas Rangers, and Native Americans, and professional soldiers, but just about everything you could imagine. That is a very eclectic group there. What, uh, for those who don't know, what's a cavalry? Oh, uh, horse soldiers. They're gonna they're gonna ride in uh, to battle on their horses with their sabers drawn and their uh, in one hand. And and of course, if you think about True Grit and John Wayne, where he puts those reins up in his teeth, they're gonna have their pistol in the other hand. No, I'm just teasing. They're not gonna be like that. But they're yeah, horseback soldiers. Horseback, yeah, we got to keep in mind that during this time, mechanization isn't quite there yet. Not quite. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of that, the crazy thing about that was they they met down in San Antonio where they tra uh, trained for this, and uh, they were told, um, we're putting you on trains, we're going to ship you to Florida, we're going to put you with on a railroad uh, or a train, and, and we're going to uh, put you on a boat, you're going to Cuba, and you're going to fight. Well, by the time they all got loaded up, on the ships down in Florida, there wasn't any room for their horses. So <laughs> there were just a few. Um, and Teddy Roosevelt was fortunate enough. Um, he was a colonel, so he was fortunate enough to have a horse um, some of the time, not all the time, but some of the time, um, fighting in Cuba. Um, so they went from the Rough Riders to just the Rough. Yeah, the Rough Foot Soldiers. There you go. Yeah. The, uh, the Rough Riders would play a very important part in this war. They would charge up um, um, San, Juan. San Juan Hill and Kettle Hill. Thank you, sir. That, that would just escape me. Uh, under heavy, heavy Spanish uh, gunfire, the Spaniards had machine guns up at the top and they were firing down as the Rough Riders uh, were charging up the hill and you know if history will tell you anything it's better in battle to be at the top of the hill than it is to be at the bottom of the hill trying to go up the hill yeah so uh, anyway they did they did suffer heavy losses there but they were overcome they were able to overcome um, the Spaniards and take control of both of the hills and this this war is not going to last very long at all about three months uh, tops most of the American soldiers that died in this in this um, war died of yellow fever um, yellow fever was just rampant down in Cuba and it, it was just devastating to the American troops but um, one other person of notoriety there were several but one other one uh, that was right by, beside him charging up these hills was um, uh, Colonel um, John J. Pershing. They, he was known as Black Jack Pershing because he commanded a black or an African-American regiment in that war. Later on, uh, Black Jack Pershing would go on to chase Pancho Villa down in Mexico and then also lead the American forces in France in World War One, so he was he was quite the, he the was general cut, cutting his teeth in the Spanish American War. Definitely. Just just getting his feet wet. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there is a great movie that I want to tell you about. It is actually called Rough Riders, and uh, the main 
some of the main uh, actors in it are Tom Berenger and Sam Elliott and Gary Busey. If I'm sure that these names probably ring a bell. And Tom, Tom Berenger just did an absolutely super job in portraying Teddy Roosevelt. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was just full of energy and full of life. Uh, never knew a stranger. And um, Tom Berenger did just a super job of portraying him in that movie. So if you're interested in this battle, especially uh, going, uh, going up San Juan Hill or Kettle Hill, um, the fighting that happened in Cuba, I'd encourage you to check that movie out. It's, it's old. It's um, produced um, in 2007, looks like. So, but I'm sorry, 2000, 2006. It was a, it's a great movie. But uh, anyway, the, you know, the fighting in Cuba was not the only fighting that occurred. The Philippine Islands, which are just right off the coast of China, um, was also colonized by the Spaniards. So was Guam, the island of Guam, and Puerto Rico, which is down in, not far from Cuba, down in the, the uh, Caribbean. And um, there, was, there was some pretty hot fighting going on in the Philippines. The American forces moved in under Commodore Dewey, and um, he was able to conquer the Spanish forces um, pretty fast. George Dewey was his name, with four cruisers and two gunboats and several thousand American soldiers. And if it would have ended right there, it would have been great. But there's going to be a lot of dissatisfaction by the Filipino people. They want independence from the United States. They had been wanting independence from Spain for many years, and nothing had really changed for them. And that's kind of what they expected from us, though, too, if I remember correctly. We were going to be their liberators, not the replacement to the Spanish, and that led to some very harsh times coming in the future for them as they try to get their independence from us. They even helped us to defeat the Spaniards. Yeah. So and I think it was part of a, they thought we were going to help liberate them, and that's not how uh, it worked out, uh, or at least not for a while. Ultimately, they would get their independence, but uh, basically, one nation was protecting them. I can do the little air quotes with that, and another one was moving in to do the same. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be until 1946 when the U.S. would grant the Philippine people independence of their country. And I thought a lot about this. Why? Why were we so... Uh, anxious to give Cuba their independence? Why were we um, so quick to tell the people of Puerto Rico and Guam, if you want your independence, you can have it, but not the Philippines? And I think it has to go back to location, location, location. It's right there off, so close to China, um, not far off the coast of China. And it was a great place for American naval ships and merchant ships um, to dock 
and um, we even had a military base there until not too long ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, anyway, that uh, that is probably worth an entire podcast itself. But in the end, um, the Philippines did receive their independence from the United States. Um, today, Guam and Puerto Rico are both colonies of the United States. And of course, Cuba is, uh, is, has been their own country for since the end of the Spanish-American War. Or territories, not colonies. I'm sorry, territories, yeah. yes. Yeah. yes. That, that's what they were trying to get away from. Yes. Yeah. But, but they did get an option. So they're too small. They they said we we need a protectorate. We need somebody there to to uh, protect us in case of invasion from another European power. And and there's been opportunities and gains for them. But the, these conversations, yellow journalism, Spanish American War, Philippines imperialism, we could talk at nauseum about them. I'm sure carry a whole series on them. And there is a lot of dark history to that that we're not really getting too deep into uh, just because we're trying to keep this moving a little quicker uh, but it's not anything that wasn't happening elsewhere with other countries other countries in you know, regards to carving up Africa uh, we mentioned the British Empire uh, China there was a lot of uh, you know behavior by some nations controlling and manipulating other nations that isn't the you know the brightest example of uh, human life at this time you know Todd I wish we would have been able to make Cuba a state or ask the Cuban people if they would have liked to become a state because I would really like to go to Cuba for vacation uh, sure it's a beautiful place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and for a while you know the interesting history which would probably be an interesting podcast is is later on the relationship we have because it was a vacation destination for quite a while and casinos and hotels and result resorts and then a little revolution and a young revolutionary Fidel Castro makes a change on that and boy did he ever make a change on it yes he did so well I think that kind of wraps this up so today you got a good taste of our first on this season podcast of emergence of a world power i was talking about the spanish-american war and imperialism i hope you enjoyed it uh, mike you got anything else i don't think so i i hate that that we have to go so fast but you know we have so much to cover and it's exciting and and uh, we can really get into some good stuff but i would encourage the listeners to uh to dig deeper in some of this stuff if if you're interested in it um, and of course, uh, the movie, uh, Rough Riders, it's a great movie to watch. And, uh, I think it's fairly accurate, historically speaking. So, yeah. anyway. As you were saying that, I was thinking of the current younger generations, and it's probably Night at the Museum and Robin Williams playing Teddy Roosevelt, and that's the picture they get today. But if you want a more accurate one, now he did a great job, mm-hmm. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, but for a comedy or fictional event you know he did a pretty cool job of representing that persona that uh, you know we've kind of read about and studied but uh, yeah there's you know you want to talk about a larger than life kind of person uh, Teddy Roosevelt was definitely that guy yeah you know uh, I read a report not long ago about Teddy Roosevelt being 
a giant of a figure in American history um, without a big war or something like the Great Depression. You know, we, we can think about Washington, American Revolutionary War. We think about Lincoln, uh, Civil War. We think about FDR and Truman, World War II. And, and uh, th those are some of our first presidents that pop into our mind. But, but Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know, he, when he was president, we didn't have a war. And yet he is a towering figure in our nation's history. Um, and I think that's one reason why he, uh, among many, that he is probably my favorite of all presidents. So, but, well, anyway, um, we do appreciate you listening to our podcast. And uh, we'll hopefully uh, catch you next time. Guys, take care.